Little House on the Prairie is an American classic. And what started as a series of books for little kids has had an outsized influence on the narrative about the American frontier. The books are based loosely on the author Laura Ingalls Wilder's own life, and they're enduring bestsellers. And they were turned into a popular primetime TV series starring Michael Landon and Melissa Gilbert that ran for nine seasons in the 1970s and early 80s. But to Alyssa Quart, an author exploring popular myths about America, Little House on the Prairie is highly problematic. In fact, she spent much of her career as a journalist writing about the way this and other stories have skewed American politics away from collective programs and toward a focus on self-reliance, pushing the idea that people can and should just go it alone. And she says this story of Ma and Pa and their kids homesteading in the late 1800s is full of willful inaccuracies. First of all, when you look historically, Pa was supposedly not a very good farmer. Um, but in the, in the book, he was doing it all by himself. But in, in reality, uh, supposedly he was asking his neighbors for help. So he was, he was interdependent. Um, obviously, they were uh, also, you know, the Homestead Act, which was the famous 1860s um, land giveaway of, of so much land and, you know, states where settlers were moving to, mostly to white people. Um, and they benefited from this. So they were, in a sense, utterly dependent. It turns out the author of Little House on the Prairie and her daughter, who served as her editor, they had strong political ideas that shaped these novels. When they were publishing the series, they, they, at least part of the series was published during the New Deal era. And uh, they, saw it as an, they saw it as a way of organizing against the New Deal. Like it was an active... Uh, they're like, this is, they hated Roosevelt. They wrote vicious letters to each other about Roosevelt, her and her daughter. And so it's really interesting if you see, it's like a denial of the Homestead Act, sort of more or less in these novels, denial of the uh, ways in which governments and government subsidies help, helped Americans and the bootstrapping, everyone did it all on their own, being weaponized, you know, against the New Deal, a, a later uh, government uh, safety net effort. So it, to me, that's very interesting. And the fact that then this was trying to sort of indoctrinate kids and then 70s kids later with the TV show, with this vision of um, kind of, yeah, white families, individualism. And to, that to me is a classic bootstrap story. Alyssa Court's latest book is all about these bootstrap stories in America. Ones that promote the idea that people should be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps no matter what social and economic issues they're up against. That book, which is due out this summer, is called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. What struck me most in our conversation about the problems of Little House on the Prairie, though, is how irresistible the story is. Even Alyssa Court's daughter loves them. I would watch the shows of my daughter, and I'd read the books to her, with, and she, she, we dressed, we had to dress as um, uh, members of Little House on the Prairie for Halloween. I was Ma. Um, I mean, the thing is, they're, they're quite good, the books. We spent part of the call actually trading our favorite moments from these stories. And there's these wonderfully memorable pouring the maple syrup on the snow. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, and the candy, this homemade candy by pouring. Yes, and I live in Minnesota, so this is real. It feels... But actually, actually a lot of what I remember, I think, and you probably do too, are the collective scenes, right? The scenes of yeah. community that were sort of uh, 
not really the point uh, for Laura Ingalls Wilder and her daughter, you know, who really wanted to make a point about this family lashed by the, you know, the worst storms and weather, you know, surviving completely on their own. So I do remember a few scenes from these Laura Ingalls Wilder books where this family is working with their neighbors and Court is staying on her message by really highlighting that. But those parts of the stories are definitely not what I remember the most. The truth is, this narrative of rugged American individualism, it's alluring. And so it can be hard to imagine a very different kind of American dream, as Court and others are trying to do. Changing this narrative is really an uphill battle. Welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and the managing editor at Ed Surge. This is a bonus episode of our Bootstrap series that we've been co-producing with our friends at the journalism nonprofit Open Campus. We are unpacking popular narratives about who gets what opportunities in America and wondering how it could all be different. Today, we are stepping back to review some key themes of our first season of the series. And we look at what's changed since we reported on some of the controversies that we dug into. And we're looking at what Alyssa Court and others see as alternatives to a Bootstraps narrative. If you haven't already, you really should go back and listen to the Bootstraps series, which started with an episode about the history of this phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We even talked with a bootmaker and heard something that surprised me about how Abraham Lincoln actually needed help getting his boots on. We also told the stories of some current debates about educational opportunity including a controversial effort to change the admission system at the best-ranked public high school in America, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, known as TJ. That school is right outside Washington, D.C. And since that episode about TJ ran last year, a lawsuit over that admission system has gone all the way to the Supreme Court. Stay tuned. I'll fill you in on that later in this episode. But in our series... I also shared some of my own sometimes unhealthy relationship with chasing good grades as a kid. And I got my alma mater, Princeton University, to give me my admissions file, which made me cringe when I saw what my teenage self um, sent in in that application. And it was a reminder of how imperfect our merit-based systems can be. To make clear what our goals are for the whole series— I thought it'd be helpful to share some of the origin story of this podcast series. And to do that, I got on the microphone with a key creator of this series, who you haven't yet heard from in the six episodes we've done. That person is Scott Smallwood, the co-founder of the journalism nonprofit Open Campus. Scott and I have known each other a long time. We worked together for years at the Chronicle of Higher Education. And it was Scott's idea to do this podcast series in the first place. We cooked it up one day when we were talking on the phone and realized that looking at this narrative of bootstraps would be a good way to look at big structural issues we were curious about, ones that were both abstract and really personal. And I remember in the fall, Jeff, we talked, I think it was in the fall, uh, more than a year ago now, I think we were reading Michael Sandel's book, uh, The Tyranny of Merit. And it's um, uh, a great great book, super interesting and really uh, challenging in some ways, I think, for me. 
because I think a lot of our conversations over the years have been ones that boil down to, man, meritocracy, it's a really good thing. We're just not doing it quite right. If only we could do it a little better. And I think Sandel's book is really interesting at saying that may or may not be true, but that's not actually the biggest issue. The biggest issue is what does it mean to be to put merit on such a pedestal and how does that shape society? And in fact, maybe doing meritocracy right isn't in fact the goal we should be having at all. Uh, that was really interesting. And I think that infuses a bunch of the work that we did over the episodes. Yeah, no, I think that was it. It was kind of, and if both of both you and I have been covering this, you know, covering education and, and with a lot of higher education focus for a long time. And these are these assumptions that people don't talk about until, you know, these last few years, there's been a lot of um, examples of people like Sandel, who is a Harvard professor with all these credentials of meritocracy himself um, with this, this question of, wait, is this, is this system kind of wired in a fair and equitable way? I mean, from the beginning, I've been thinking and trying to wrestle with the fact that Right. I mean, Jeff, you and I are um, middle aged white dudes who went to fancy colleges. Um, I didn't go to an Ivy League college, but, you know, one of those places that's, you know, sort of a step below and likes to uh, uh, think maybe it's on that level sometimes. And that is uh, and that shapes a lot of our professional lives and day to day lives and the opportunities that we uh, were able to have. And neither of us came from you know, sort of um, rich families that donated a lot of money. And that's how we got to those colleges. But um, being honest about the opportunities that those opened up for us and thinking, uh, thinking hard about that and thinking about the way that so many of these conversations are shaped by the, the word of deserved, you know, I, I did well in high school, you did well in high school. Did that mean we deserve these opportunities? Um, and, and did we do high, did we do well in high school? You know, did, did we have some, you know, help that we didn't even realize at the time or, or advantages? And, and I certainly wrestle with more, what does it even mean? We use all of these, uh, words like do well. And, um, I, uh, one of the episodes I loved in this series is your, all of your conversations with Todd Rose about, um, about his work and the end of average and what it means to, and I fall into this myself all the time where I say things like, Oh, so-and-so smart or so-and-so is bright. Um, and that has really made me question. What is it? I mean about that. Todd Rose does a really good job talking about how these multi-dimensional um, concepts uh, don't make any sense for us to be talking about things like, um, where where somebody is on the spectrum of a multidimensional idea. So I can talk about that I'm taller than Jeff. That's one dimension. But um but I can't talk about like I'm bigger than Jeff. He does a good job in the book at talking about that. Like what does it mean to say somebody's big? Oh we're sort of talking about weight maybe or height or maybe size or their chest or all sorts of different their shoe size. Lots of different dimensions could be buried in that word. And that's even a simpler word maybe than, you know, smart or bright. Um, and I do that uh, myself. I think about that a lot. And what am I really saying when I me mean those 
when I say those? What am I really meaning when I say those words? Uh, probably something pretty narrow, and then I'm acting like it's a real global concept. Right, like there's this, yeah, like there's this scientific, you know, measure that we're all being stacked against. I mean, Scott, even just now I noticed like you're like, well, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I'm like, who cares? Like we <laughs> both, course. we both like, it's 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 kind of a rounding error, the difference between the educations we got um, for the record, in our privileged, for the record, I in went our to privileged North- world. For the record, I went to Northwestern, so I'm not trying to hide that or uh, put that up on a pedestal. It's got its own issues. Um, but uh, it is, um, uh, w- yes, within the within the spectrum of, you know, at 30,000 feet, um, all of these colleges that we went to. And for the most part, the people we deal with kind of every day and many of the reporters that we've worked with, at 30,000 feet, they all went to the same colleges. And um, that is... Uh, that's something we should wrestle with, right? Like when we think about um, where most people in the country are going to school, it is not those places. And this series has really let me reflect and kind of do some soul searching, you know, sitting there going through my college application and um, kind of having to, you know, which I was always so proud of getting into Princeton and and really kind of feeling as I dug into it with what I know now and from my perspective of having covered higher ed and, and looking at the, this, the, the, the cold hard facts of, of how my essay maybe wasn't so amazing um, made me think like, is this, is there a, a bit of a randomness or, you know, how is even this, even within oh, the system yeah. that, I mean, there's a huge, have, there's a huge yeah. amount of randomness, right? There's a huge amount of randomness. And what's fascinating though, is our, we are really, we are really uninterested in talking about that randomness. We do not want to describe it as random. Uh, And And it doesn't do me any favors, I suppose, to like be admitting this, but it is like, I got a lot of, I got a lot of great emails from people um, who also went to, um, you know, Ivy league schools that were like, I felt the same way. Like why me? Um, In some ways, even though they worked hard and we worked hard, fine. So do a lot of people. Exactly. And would we be better off if we were acknowledging more of that, right? Like if you were at, you go to a football game in a big arena and they, um, they do a raffle and pull out your ticket and you get to go down on the floor and win a prize. Nobody is like, well, I mean, he deserved it. He did the good work to get his ticket pulled today. Everybody's clear that that's a, totally random thing. I mean, it was clear that you only got that because you were in the arena, you did some things to get there and made it possible that your ticket could get pulled. But when you're on the court winning the prize, nobody thought, Jeff, he is, man, he deserves that prize today. Such a good job. And I do think we should probably all wrestle with what it means to um, acknowledge more that uh, there's a lot of randomness in this system rather than tell ourselves these just so stories about um, how certain people are at the top because they uh, deserve it. And that we maybe that we could all have more humility uh, when we do get pulled down to the court and we do win that prize. We're like, eh, yeah, it's kind of random. That's what happened. And it, it gets really hard when you start to think about, you know, Michael Sandel, for instance, with um, in his book, he, he argues in the tyranny of merit that um, college applications to a place like Harvard 
which can only have a few thousand slots a year, that's all they have, um, it, that it should be by lottery in a little bit like the way you describe that football stadium moment of the people who get to a certain bar. Um, I don't think Harvard's actually going to adopt that idea, but, um, but in, in, that raises other questions. Like, is that the right way to go? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, we saw that with the, the TJ episode and the, and the debates about, um, about lotteries. Um, and to yeah, me, I got, people got very upset about that. Right. And, and to me, it's also like the, we can get into the individual debates, I think, about the, the pr- sort of the practical rules about how a lottery might work. I do think we should be wrestling, though, with like what it would mean from a sort of the storytelling standpoint. What is the story that we're telling ourselves about these places? Um, I would argue right now Harvard's admissions is, in fact, more of a lottery than we any of us talk about. It it actually has a lottery element baked into it, sort of a randomness, at least, baked into it. Um, all of these places do. But we that is definitely not how we talk about it to each other, to ourselves. Throughout this series, we also dug into the history of some of the most popular narratives in American education. And some of what we found indicated that a lot of pioneers in American education base their beliefs on the racist assumption that some groups are just more deserving of education than others. This seemed especially true in the origin story of gifted education, which we tackled on one episode called The Strange Past and Messy Future of Gifted and Talented. Imagine if you pitch gifted as like, um, let's see who gets, um, uh, let's see who gets normal education and let's see that if you don't get past this bar, you don't get normal education. You get a uh, you get like this subpar package, uh, which is the same thing we're doing, really. Right. We just don't pitch it that way. We don't talk about the, the what is the zero? What is the baseline? Um, if we decided that the baseline was the the other thing, then this what we're giving everybody else would be less than. I was surprised in reading back through some of those um, early writings on education by the like the Lewis Terman and others about how blatant they were about that. Yeah, super, um, super clear, right? Like not not hiding the ball at all. Again, to our 2020, 2022 ears, it is like, well, this is totally unacceptable. Um, but Right. But sometimes I sort of do wonder, like... Um, are they just being a little clearer or um, about kind of the same stuff we do today? It just wouldn't be politically cool to say it that way anymore. Yeah. Like, is this really still pretty, pretty right there below the surface? Yeah, definitely. Um, And that, I guess that's the part where, um, you know, when we did talk to Todd Rose, he was very, Keen and, and, and we quote this in the first episode of changing the narrative. Like there is, he sees and others we talk to feel like we could be having a, a more productive conversation about opportunity in America. Um, and you know, I, I feel like that's what I was hoping this this series would contribute to. Um, even though we we're not prescribing any 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 answers, um, but it does feel like maybe there's some hope there in like being more honest and more you know, kind of clear about what these, what the pros and cons are of various approaches. 
So in our episode on gifted, we looked at a controversy among scholars of gifted education about how to talk about the history of gifted. And one of the founders of the idea, Lewis Terman. And the takeaway was that talking about the role race and racism has played in American education remains a kind of third rail. Largely, we still aren't having that rational policy debate about how to do education more fairly. I checked in the other day with Jonathan Plucker, a professor who is the past president of the National Association for Gifted Children, who we had talked to for our previous episode. And he told me that since our episode ran, the debates have gotten only more polarized, especially in California, where a controversy is raging about equity in advanced courses that has led some schools to simply eliminate advanced courses altogether. Uh, The San Francisco uh, recall vote, um, uh, political pundits have gotten it completely wrong. They're all like, this is about them taking Lincoln's name off of schools. Uh, I follow a lot of those community organizers. That never came up once. It was, can you believe that they got rid of advanced education? And like, that was the motivating factor. I mean, so this is, this is just, it's becoming hotter and hotter and hotter in people's minds. Um, and as we talked about last time, I just, uh, there is a path forward here that actually works for most people. And it's become so heated. Um, and yet it's incredibly nuanced, right? And so uh, I just think there's, there is tons that, 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 you know, still needs to be talked about with this. So this professor is learning firsthand that trying to change the national narrative about the work he's doing comes with lots of challenges. When I was an undergrad, uh, I knew the dean of my school of education, and he pulled me aside at one point. I wasn't even an education major. I just met him through someone else. We were talking, and I was talking about, you know, it seems like politicians are paying more attention to teachers. And he just groaned, and he said, you will learn in life, my friend, that uh, it, I being the subject of conversation is not the wonderful thing you think it is. It it just means that you have moved to the bullseye and it feels very differently on the other side. Oh my gosh. Is that so true is um, this gifted stuff has just exploded. And uh, a lot of my colleagues are not happy that it has. I think, I I think it's a good thing um, because we've got to do a better job for these kids and we're doing a really crappy job right now. So what is the alternative to the bootstrapping narrative promoted by stories like Little House on the Prairie? That's one of the key questions that Alyssa Court tackles in her new book, Bootstrapping. So half of my book is devoted to this. Like, what are these potential steps we can take? What are we doing now? What are we doing on an individual level? What are we doing on a political level, governmental level? Um, You know, how how are we rethinking it? Uh, uh, how can philanthropy help? How can uh, therapy help? Uh, so, I mean, I, have, I look into this and I, I write about mutual aids and also the history of mutual aids. And actually, one thing that was interesting when I was looking into this is there's a whole, you know, from Darwin to Kropotkin, there's a whole history of thought around mutuality that is often under underread. It's not being read to, with the same excitement as uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, all these years. So I think what we need to do is we need to start, start looking at this literature and this canon and um, thinking about mutuality and interdependence as, as biological 
um, as uh, ways in which we can build our economy, ways in which that we can live, live better together. And what, I mean, the pandemic obviously brought mutual aid to the fore. I mean, I don't know about where you live, Jeff, but in every neighborhood in New York, there was a refrigerator, there were mutual aid groups delivering food. I, I talked to a number of people involved in this movement. Um, there are work co-ops, co-ops that are owned by both the worker, the, that are owned by the workers themselves, and the workers are also obviously employed by them. Uh, and those are on the rise. So I, I spoke to a number of people at worker cooperatives around this country. There's uh, something I call um, inequality therapy, <laughs> which is therapy aimed at helping people look at social class and what, what it has done, what some of these inequities have done to them individually, instead of saying, get well individually. It says, what has our system done to you? And how can we all get better together? So it's a different way of thinking about healing mentally, uh, psychologically. Um, and, you know, participatory budgeting. I mean, I sort of get into a lot of different movements that are on the rise. And so, the yeah, so you see glimmers of this counter narrative, if you will. I, I noticed one thing you mentioned even is the kind of GoFundMe model of of of, you know, as a pull yourself up thing that, that people are, you know, sometimes point to is like, and within teachers, there's this donors choose group that helps teachers like put out calls for like, help me get my classroom supplies that aren't surprised. That, that feels like this strange in between in a way of like, um, pulling yourself up, but also collective action. How How does, so I call this the dystopian social net. Um, and it's sort of what we're left with when we have a, a bootstraps-oriented uh, political civic culture. Um, uh, we're, and obviously, the individual c- can't always do the things that they're being asked to do. So then they're forced to resort to their friends and strangers to pay for basic, basic, their basic human needs, like medical care and emergencies or school lunch. And dystopian. So it obviously, basically, it's this, um, yeah, it's it's a system that is not a system. It is basically you hacking maybe the 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 available resources or lack of them to try to just kind of get figure out something that's not provided. Yeah, I mean, for instance, one uh, one of the people I spoke to was a woman who raised money in um, Helena, Montana. Uh, when a collection agency tried to squeeze $100,000 from families who hadn't paid for their school meals, and she was just completely distrusting of the established order, and she said, you know, these are families. They were working class, so they weren't able to get um, SNAP, or they were not SNAP eligible. So they were sort of fell betwixt and between, um, and that was why their kids were in debt. And at that time, I'm not sure it was happening in the schools where she was raising money for, but at other schools, they were stamping kids' hands, which had lunch, you know, lunch unpaid. Uh, it's just pretty, pretty basically abusive things. So she was trying to prevent that from happening. And so she, uh, you know, realized that they, the school district officials hadn't been tracking which student debtors actually qualified for free or reduced lunch. Um, and then she found out that like people in Seattle and Fargo, it was a whole thing that there was like a school lunch area on GoFundMe. And it's quite populated if you check it out. 
of people, schools and individuals raising money for school lunches <laughs> in their districts. Um, so, you know, I think in the end, she didn't actually make enough. Um, and one thing that we, we need to remember here is that uh, this is, was recent, right? There's a suburban Milwaukee school district where board members considered opting out of a federally funded free meal program. Because one, that. one said that that led families to become spoiled or it was a, quote, slow addiction. So I feel like that really gets at the bootstraps mentality and how toxic and unnecessary it is. Because this is like an actual program that existed, that these board members were standing in the way of families accessing. And probably in that instance, also forcing them to go to on school lunch, <laughs> you know, to, to raise money and go fund me. So GoFundMe is part of this netherworld in my book of people relying on that. It's like um, they're sort of the victims of bootstrapping, I'd say. Things have changed in the last few years about this narrative, um, even probably even while you're researching this book. And I wonder how optimistic are you that collectively we can, um, that America might have a new understanding of the American dream that is more collectivist and less self-reliant? Which is what you're arguing for, if I understand your book correctly. Completely. Um, and also, like, returning to the original, there's an original meaning of dependence, was, which was to hang from. And it wasn't, it wasn't considered negative. Dependence was considered something that people were born into. Um, and then it sort of took on a negative connotation um, because it was aligned with women and children and uh, intersected with sexism and racism um, but there's nothing wrong inherently with independence and, or obviously interdependence. So am I optimistic? Well, see, so the pandemic cut both ways, right? It forced us to be isolated, siloed. Uh, it also made people recognize things like, and I've just wrote a piece about this in the Washington Post, you know, that programs like Medicaid and SNAP had these really cruel uh, levels of obstacles that people had to get through because of this bootstraps ideology that we have in this country and that we need to simplify them. We need to simplify these processes. Like, for instance, um, there's a recertification process that takes place with Medicaid on a regular basis. And then people are, it's called they're churned. They're churned, they fall off the, uh, fall out of the ranks and then they have to go back on again. And it's a very regular with SNAP, you have SNAP, which is the food stamps program. It's what it's called now, supplemental nutrition. Um, people have to go through interviews. Uh, so they have to find the interviewer. They have to have, bring all their papers in. And they're often uh, subject to invasive questions like, you know, what have you spent on school supplies this month? You know, uh, there was recently a wonderful uh, Maine, I think it was a state government hearing where a Maine politician was forced to be grilled about his own life the way that SNAP recipients were. And it was like, so, you know, what do you spend on your electricity bill? So what happened during the pandemic is a lot of these uh, processes became more efficient. They had to, because you couldn't go in person. Uh, the workers themselves were not uh, going to field offices, right? Uh, people were resigning, right? There was a great resignation. So uh, employees, so there weren't going to be as many people. Um, and that is an example of, I don't want to say greater uh, interdependence, but a greater uh, tolerance and uh, a lessened punishment for dependence. 
So like it's, and that maybe is one thing that is a good sign of what happened in the pandemic. I mean, these are millions of people whose, whose life became much more efficient and possible. But at the same time, I, we can see how all of these things are starting to be stymied in the Senate, um, that Biden has had to be push and push, often unsuccessfully, to get these more interdependent policies around human infrastructure, which was a term I actually used and squeezed, um, to get that through. So that's, it's sort of, I don't know. Um, it's hard, actually, to <laughs> write in this space right now because everything shifts by the week. You know, you'll be like, build back better will seem like the ultimate interdependent set of policies and this real revelation. And then, um, you know, you have Joe Manchin, you know, sitting on it um, and other people sort of just thwarting it. Uh, so I don't know. It's, it's a mixed Blessing. I mean, I think there is has been a change in how we're thinking. I think it's a change in how we're thinking about ourselves and this requirement uh, to be independent or a successful individual. I think some of that is being challenged. People are reading the Great Resignation as part of that, where people are willing to um, leave their jobs and because you know they're underpaid or they're undervalued, and um, they you know, they want to protest in some way. Obviously, some of the efforts towards uh, the strikes that have been successful, the Starbucks strikes, the Amazon strike, um, and that's just happened in recent weeks. That That's an example, again, of a successful collective action, right, uh, that was unexpected. People didn't think this would actually work. Um, but I could imagine you have the midterms and it all gets toppled. So, yeah. I don't know. I'm not. What, what's the what's the elevator pitch? <laughs> but the other thing we haven't talked about is how polarized the the debates have become around any public discourse right now in the country. And I, I some I'm very mindful that for some people listening to this or hearing about your book, they may violently disagree and they may want the little house on the prairie American dream that that, that and they may still not be convinced um, by your arguments. And I wonder. Uh, how might we have a debate where people on on that that disagree are, are talking about the substance or the because it feels like there's a lot of gaming um that's gone on throughout in in talking about how to you know argue for and against different social programs and i i guess that's the other thing i wonder is like i, I don't know um is there a hope that books like this can can change minds or is it more of a rallying people who already agree? And, uh, and what is the, what is the mechanism anymore for, for talking about the American dream, which is obviously the ultimate collective, um, you know, uh, narrative that we're as a country all living under. Well, I have, I feel like I, in my books nowadays, I have like, two goals. One is I call it radical self-help, which is just to get people to stop blaming themselves. So if you, read this, maybe you are in agreement with me, but you're still riven with self-doubt and self-hatred. Like, why have I not had this individual success and self-sufficiency, economic self-sufficiency I was supposed to? Uh, Why have I not had this level of mobility that I should have? You know, I feel like this book and my last book, Squeezed, I was really trying to tear the veil off. And I have heard from readers that it's been helpful. So that's sort of the you know, I feel like self-help, do, again, it's part, we go back to inequality therapy. It doesn't, people don't really uh, address people on that level to free them of the self-blame, right? 
uh, around uh, economic fragility. Um, and then the other is just to give people language, including politicians and whatever, I guess they call them thought leaders, um, just like to create language and phrases and frameworks, you know, kind of re reframe. That's, a, that's sort of my other intention, really, with this book. Um, yeah. But, yeah. It's sort of what you're doing with the bootstraps. I mean, I think, I feel like language is, certain kinds of languages are often in short supply for how we can think about ourselves as citizens. As is becoming clear, we are in the thick of what looks like it will be a long and heated public debate about what the American dream should look like, especially around who gets what educational opportunities. And the best example of how big this question is getting is what's happened in the past few months with the debate over the admissions policy at Thomas Jefferson High School. Now, the issues there are complicated, and we spent a whole episode trying to sort out what's at stake. Please go listen to that if you haven't heard it already. The episode was called Fighting for TJ. So the school put in place a new admission system that drops the standardized test and instead uses a holistic review of each student's academic performance. And as supporters hoped, the change led to more racial and economic diversity in the first class admitted with the new system. The percentage of black students went from just about 1% the prior year to more than 7%. And the percentage of economically disadvantaged students admitted shot up from less than 1% to more than 25%. One demographic group went down, though. The percentage of Asian students went from 73% to 54%. And that decline led to outrage by some who felt the new system was designed to discriminate against Asian Americans. A group of those parents, called the Coalition for TJ, sued the school system in federal court, arguing that point. And a federal judge agreed with the Coalition for TJ and ruled that the school had to scrap that new admission system and go back to the old way. The school board appealed, and an appeals court judge said that the school could keep using the new system while that case is being litigated. It turns out there is a special provision that allows for the Supreme Court of the U.S. to weigh in when the timing is urgent. It's sometimes called the shadow docket. And under that shadow docket, the issue of whether TJ can use the new admissions system while the case is pending went to the highest court in the land. I wondered what the activists fighting for this new admission system thought of these legal developments. So I recently reached out to Akshay Devarakanda, an alumni from Thomas Jefferson High School, who we talked to in our previous episode. Akshay is aware that the Supreme Court today, it tilts more to the political right than in recent years. And so it seemed he was stealing himself for a high court defeat. You know, I... There's one journalist, I forget who, she noted in, in many periods throughout American history, like, for example, with, re, with like, Reconstruction, and then the Jim Crow, Jim Crow laws following that, and then also you have the Civil Rights era, and then the, like, the, I guess, like, the silent, silent majority Republicanism and and so on and so forth, so forth following that. Then you have the summer of 2020 Black Lives Matter protests. And then you have, following that, you have a year of people raging about 
quote-unquote critical race theory in schools. What we've seen time and again throughout American history is that anytime we take one step forward, unfortunately and inevitably, there will always be at least at least one step back. But you know, I guess I think of that quote that I mentioned to you because even though even though you know that you're going to be forced to step back, sometime down the road, maybe it might be the medium term, maybe it might be the long term, but sooner or later down the road, you'll have a chance to step forward eventually. Just last month, it was a few days after I talked to Akshay, the Supreme Court weighed in. Or more precisely, uh, they declined to weigh in. One of the nation's top-rated high schools can go ahead with its new admissions plan, even though a community group says it discriminates against Asian Americans. The Supreme Court declining to block that policy late yesterday. That's a clip from NBC News, whose legal expert noted that the only signals from the justices did confirm Akshay's fears about the overall direction of the court's thinking. At this stage, Mm -hmm. the court simply issues an order. No, we're not going to grant this stay that you wanted. But yes, there was some disagreement noted. Three of the justices, uh, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, said they would have agreed with the Asian American parents and would have allowed the court ruling to go back into effect. But there's never any explanation. So this is not a decision on the merits. The Supreme Mm -hmm. Court is not saying who they think is right or wrong here. They're simply declining to take this up. And they usually don't take these things up at such a preliminary stage. So this legal battle is far from over. And we're not done covering these issues. We hope that this series can help others step back and consider the broader issues shaping these heated debates about equity in education. We have even heard from some listeners that they've had podcast clubs around these episodes, listening to our series and coming together to discuss it with their coworkers as they work through these issues in their own organizations, which is really cool to hear about. While our first season is now over, we're hoping to come back with season two. And we're doing some planning for that now. So stay tuned. If you have suggestions or feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can let me know on Twitter at J.R. Young. And the best way for you to support this work in the meantime is to take a minute to leave a rating or review wherever you're currently listening. Okay, it turns out I'm really bad at saying goodbye. So instead, I am just going to start into our credits. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, editing, and tons of other support by Scott Smallwood. You heard a clip from the theme music to the TV show Little House on the Prairie and short clips from NBC News. Definitely check out Alyssa Court's new book, which looks even deeper into this history and impact of the bootstraps narrative. Music this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Of course, we will be back next week with another regular episode of the Ed Surge podcast. Thanks for listening.